Man, I loved, I loved hearing you guys in that last Oh Holy Night. Isn't that song incredible? Dude, I just, part of me was like, should we just reread the, the lyrics to that? Because the gospel's right there, and I can just go home. We can all go home early. Um, hey, friends, we're going to read the story of God together, the Holy Scriptures, that we get the privilege of um, slowing down and immersing ourselves in today. So, friends, our text today is Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, not 4, but 25, the whole thing. Read with me. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Would you pray with me, church? Father, Spirit, Son, we come to a place of stillness before you. Having offered our praise, we quiet our minds and our hearts, and we invite you, Lord. Invite you, Holy Spirit, to quiet the voices within and without, the worries and the hopes that we brought with us in through the door, and uh, make us simple before you. Open our ears to hear your voice today, not mine, but your voice of love, your voice of truth, your voice that calls us and names us and sets us free. Fashion us into one people, united by your love, empowered by your spirit to be your hands and feet today as we receive your word afresh this morning. In your name, amen. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. Friends, it's a privilege to get to be with you. Um, I just can't tell you how much it means to me to get to come up here a couple of times a year and to crack open scripture with you guys and to discover together how God might want to encounter us and transform our minds and our hearts. And I am confident that he will not fail us this morning, even if I might. <laughs> I've set a task for myself, uh, knowing that I have a propensity to run on and to talk too much and to kind of succumb to my own ADD and flit from here and there. And so I try and write a little synopsis, which I call the too long didn't read, the TLDR so that I can ask you guys to just pay attention for one and a half minutes, and you can hear the main point of the message, and then you are free to tune out for the rest of it if you want. Um, and I will have not made sure that I've, I've missed anything. So this is my attempt at the TLDR, okay? Then we'll jump into things. If I were to try and summarize our text today and the truths it would have to offer you and I, it would go something like this. God is wild, wonderful, alive, and active. The Holy Spirit 
catalyzes creation, Jesus' conception, and the light of faith within each of our human hearts. The life of faith and righteousness cannot be equated with following tradition, religious tradition, or social convention. Instead, it is defined by radical obedience to the voice of God, often at great cost. The stunning good news of Christmas is that Jesus, in Jesus Christ, God reveals himself to be the with us God. The with us God who saves, faithfully overcoming and undoing sin and creating a surprising new community of sons and daughters that bear witness to his love by our love and our obedience to a new way of being. This God that assures us of his active power and grace at work in each of us and in our communities as we sometimes, always imperfectly, sometimes even perhaps immorally, but always faithfully navigate the changing seasons of life. That's it. We're all dismissed and you can go home and have lunch. (laughs) So I want to try and slow it down and, and break it down a little bit. When Ryan um, reached out and asked me if I'd be willing, hey, bro, you want to you preach for part of our, our Christmas series, Surprised by Joy? I was like, yes, it would be my honor. What text do you think you, you've got for me? And he's like, oh, Matthew 1, 18 through 25, because, you know, I thought it'd be hilarious and awesome to have Joseph preach on Joseph. <laughs> I was like, well, you are a clever man. Um, you put me in an unfortunate situation because it will make me sound like two, two things are happening. One, I just really like talking about myself. Or two, I'm speaking in the third person for most of the sermon. So I'm going to do my best to avoid it. Um, just know that when I use the term Joseph, unless I specify, I'm not in fact talking about myself. I'm talking about this Joseph, okay? You know, it's a really challenging task, preaching during Christmas, because you and I are so familiar with it. We look forward to it every year, or maybe we dread it every year. I don't know. Um, it's okay, depending on which end of the spectrum you're at. But Regardless, it's a year that's, it's a time of year that we know is marked by activity and tradition. There are gifts to buy, there are agonizing Christmas lists to make because you don't know what you want because we all have too much, right? Um, So you can spend all of your money at the Missions Christmas Fair. Bless our partners, little plug. Um, No, but it's, it's something that our minds and our lives are filled with so much travel plans, the anticipation of reuniting with family, the dread of reuniting with family. All of this, I'm afraid, has this powerful capacity to put us under a spell where we're inoculated against the wonder and the scandal of Christmas. That we are often too, time, we're too captured by the spirit of consumerism or of self-indulgence or what have you to really be shocked by the Christmas story. We've heard it so many times. Those of us that have grown up in the church or who have said yes and who followed Jesus, even, you know, even though we live in a pretty secularizing society in so many ways, everybody is really familiar with um, some version of the Jesus story. So how is it possible? Is it possible for you and I to hear this afresh today? I believe it is. Not by my own power or, or cleverness or creativity, but because that is what the Holy Spirit always is longing to do, is to bring the word of God at home into our hearts and our minds in a new, fresh, and enlivening way. He can do it. 
We have to say yes, though. We have to receive his invitation to experience him afresh. Thankfully for us, uh, this is not a safe story. This is a scandalous story. Whether you know it or not, the genealogy that precedes our text today is also a scandalous story, um, complete with creative revisions in some ways by our author, and including characters who we would not expect to be included in the lineage of God and in the family that bears his name. It's a great surprise, this story. It's not a safe story, and it invites us to leave our preconceived notions of who God is and how he might work and how he might speak in, in their day and age and in our day and age at the door and give him permission to show up in ways that subvert our expectations and challenge the established status quo. So buckle up. It's a good story, and we're going to dive into it. Before we dive into it, though, I titled this sermon, what did I title this sermon? I, <laughs> I titled this sermon, Joseph the Just and the Strangely Wrapped Gift. And that last phrase, the strangely wrapped gift, is from a dear friend and mentor of mine, Jeff Rinke, that he uses often when he talks about how our pain is oftentimes a strangely wrapped gift from God, that if we are willing to receive it, and not reject it, to unwrap it, we will discover in it God's tenderness, his mercy, and his power at work wildly within us. So I want to slow down, and I want us to unpack together this strangely wrapped gift of Joseph and Mary's story. Now, in order to do that, I think if we're going to be true to scripture and be good exegetes and students together, we have to actually do a little bit of background work. We have to ask the question of what, who was Matthew writing to and why does that matter? And, and what was going on in the lives of the community of believers to whom this was originally intended? Because once we understand that, we can understand that this was not just a word for them then, but is for us now. So, who is he writing to? Why? What does it matter? Well, Matthew is writing, we believe, to a community of Jewish believers uh, sometime in the 70s AD, okay? Now, if you know your church history, you know that something cataclysmic happened in 70 AD, which is that after years of attempted revolt, actually some, sometimes successful revolt, the Jewish community, which had been agitating politically and scheming militarily, had been trying to reclaim Jerusalem and become an autonomous state, where they were free from Roman rule and free to worship the way that they longed to. Well, they experienced some small degree of success in the 60s, and then Rome decided, we're going to bring the boot down. And the emperor of Vespasian dispatched the Roman general Titus and said, hey, you know what? The best way to really end this once and for all is to take them out, just to cut their heart out. That means we have to destroy the temple. So in 70 AD, Rome conquers Jerusalem, and raises the temple to the ground, leaving nothing but what we now see as the Wailing Wall. Actually, I think I've got some pictures of what that might look like. There we go. This is what it, the temple w uh, probably looked like before 70 AD. This is the very beating heart of the Jewish community and their whole identity. It is more than just identity. It is its presence and the activity that goes on here is their assurance 
that the cosmological order, the whole order of the cosmos is in fact intact and that the covenant that God made with them is still valid. They are secure. He will, despite all present circumstances, be faithful to them. And then this happens, the next picture, right? This is a painting. You can see it's utter chaos. They set it on fire. Most, not just the temple is destroyed, but most of the religious leadership in the priesthood is killed. Vespasian wanted to exterminate their capacity to worship and thus their identity as a people. Now, a few survive. A few of the priesthood and the remaining believers, both Jewish and Christian, are scattered. And they're scattered to a number of different places, but one of the places they go to is Antioch, about 300 miles north of Jerusalem, where there's kind of a temple 2.0. Um, there's it was a sacred site in a lot of different ways um, because the only thing left standing after that was this next picture, which we know as today as the Wailing Wall. That's all that's left of what was their most sacred site, the beating heart of Judaism and the very assurance of God being with them and for them. So they're in Antioch and they are utterly devastated. They have lost everything. Everything. And we can't, it's really hard for you and I to to grasp how profound the loss is this, because we don't really have the equivalent in our modern day. You know, we have, we've got stories, and we've got history, and we've got national myths that bind us together that say, hey, this is who we are as a people and as a community. We have that as Christians and believers in many different ways, but we're fractured, and we're distracted, and we are not as tightly knit, anywhere tightly knit, as the Jewish people were. So it's, it's really difficult for you and I even in our wildest imaginations, to understand how devastating this would be. They are left utterly shaken, despairing. Has God completely abandoned us? Now, it's important for us to grapple with this because isn't, in so many ways, that story the story of our own lives and world today? How many of you, when you read the newspapers or when you get... Um, on social media, or you listen to the radio or a podcast, whatever, how many of you hear stories of hope that promise of a better world and a future for our children and our grandchildren? I don't hear many of those. I see headlines of war and rumors of war and tragic loss of life and environmental degradation and disease and the rise of AI that's going to displace all of our jobs and the zombie apocalypse and everything else you can imagine. The community in Antioch is wrestling with a profound spiritual question here. It's a question of who are we in the wake of this loss. It's a question of how do we navigate change, which is a perennial question for you and for I on the spiritual journey and in our lives, because you guys know this to be true. If you're living here breathing, life has not unfolded the way that you expected, has it? Something has gone awry. I don't know what each of you guys walked in here with today, Perhaps some of you came in on a high because life is rich and you sense God's presence. Maybe there's a new child or grandchild in the family. Maybe there's a new love, a new marriage or a relationship. Maybe there's the blessing of meaningful work, a promotion, economic abundance. Those are all good. But those, might, those can be changed too, even if it's positive. Some of us might be walking in, as Wendy mentioned, and we're entering a Christmas season where this is the first one without someone that we love dearly, whose presence helped make Christmas meaningful. Maybe there's been an, an end of a relationship, an illness, a death, 
a catastrophe, a loss that we weren't anticipating. Who, wherever you may be at, what is certain is something that binds us together is the fact that um, we are powerless in so many ways in the face of life, and we cannot control it, though we might try. So the question for you and I in so many ways is how will we navigate change? Who is God in the midst of that? And who does that make us? What does that enable us to be and to do and to believe and to think in times of uncertainty and change? See, what they were facing then, is it not what we're facing now? In ways personal and communal. In the face of that change, in their context emerged four voices, which I think are voices that are within your own head and heart and mind, and that we also hear in our society too. It's these four voices. The apocalyptic voice, which says, this is the end. The sky is falling. The country is doomed. The church is dying off. There is no hope. Lord, have mercy. Lord, come quickly, because we cannot imagine a good future ahead. You've heard this voice. We've heard it from pulpits and from pundits. We've heard it within ourselves when loss and change comes. The other voice is the legal voice. This is the condemning one. This is the one that says, ah, well, we must, be the pro- we must be the problem. We must, this must be a karmic universe. We must have sinned, so therefore we must repent. We must get back to a righteous way of living, and then surely God will bless us. And we, we have to be honest. Oftentimes, the chaos, confusion, and loss in our lives is a result of our own sin and our own choices and the choices of those that we have asked to be our leaders. We do need to reckon with that. But is it the most trustworthy voice? Does it contain the deepest truth? Will it lead us to hope and to life? I doubt. I doubt that it does. The next voice is the apathetic or the ambivalent or just the practical one, the one that says in the face of great change or loss, I can't be bothered to ask the larger question. I, I just have to make it through today. I just have to put food on the table. I have to put, clothe my kids. I cannot worry about what this might say about the state of the world or God. I just, I just got to make it through today. That's a deeply understandable response, but it's also a response that's trying to evade the invitation that change is offering each of us. So that last voice, which is, I believe is in many ways the, the voice and the response of the believing Jewish believers in Antioch following the destruction of the temple, this one asks a question in response to the question. This one says, how can I welcome and faithfully navigate change by following the way of Jesus Messiah? That's our question. How are you and how am I going to navigate change, whether it's positive or negative, in our own lives, and how are we going to do that as a community, a Jesus community here, a local political community, a national one? We've covered the historical context of who Matthew's writing to, and we see how deeply it resonates with our own present moment, because God's word is always a word for now, not just back then. That's what makes it living and active. That's what makes it true and reliable.
Before we can dive into the particularity of Joseph's story and this dramatic scene, we still have to do a little bit of work because it primes the pump and it sets the stage for us. And that's the story of the genealogy, which I love. We could do a whole, man, we could do a whole sermon series on just the genealogy of Matthews. Wouldn't you guys like that? Doesn't that sound fascinating? Just a list of names, right? That none of us know except for those Bible quiz nerds, you know, who've memorized stuff like that. No, really, you know, we're not used to genealogies. How many of you here can actually, could actually name your family tree on either side beyond, like, past your great-grandparents? Not a lot of hands. There was a couple last service, right? So we don't really, we don't really connect with the fact that this list of names is not just a list of names, it's a story. It's a dramatic narrative. And for Matthew, the author here, he's been actually very intentional. He's taken some creative liberties. He's changed some things. He's left some things out. Actually, Matthew and Luke, their genealogies, they don't really match up, which, which begs a question. Is the attempt here just historical, or is it actually deeper than that? Is Matthew trying to tell a theological story about who God is that primes the pump for people to receive a fresh story about what God might be doing? I think it's the latter. So what is that story? Just very briefly... There's three movements in it. There's 14 generations. Well, actually, there's, it says there's 14, but if you count it, it's kind of weird because the last has only 13 generations named. So, I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine. But the story that unfolds, it starts with Abraham, which for the Jewish people would have meant an entire story came to mind. And it was a story of God's convening of them as a people. Right? The, promise, the, the promise to Abraham is a wide promise. It, it demonstrates the character of God and his desire to what? To bless all of humanity. He calls Abraham and says, through you, I will, I will make you a father of many nations and I will bless all people. That's God's desire made manifest in his promise to Abraham. It's a wide promise. It's also a deep promise when it comes to David. David, we progress through the story, the history of, of Israel there, and we get to David, and David represents the pinnacle, right? The pinnacle of, of the Israelite kingdom, the greatest king, the man who is a man after God's own heart, in, even including his own broken humanity, his failures as a father, his moral failings, as an adulterer, his abuses of power, all those things don't stand in the way of God saying, um, you, I see my own heart in you, David. You are faithful. And the, the rise of the, the nation state and the kingdom of Israel, his promise to David is that a member of his lineage will forever sit on the throne. Now, the, you know, the, the Jewish people are tempted to think of that only in physical and political terms, right? And this promise of that's what's framing their expectations of the Messiah, that one day God will be faithful to that promise and we will have a, a new king come and restore the, way, restore the kingdom of Israel in the way things are supposed to be. That first narrative there, it's revealing God's mercy. God's mercy is reflected in his promises to bless all people and to to offer a king for Israel that would also be a king for us. The second movement that's of it is actually revealing God's judgment because what does it happen then after David? It leads to exile. Babylon comes 
and the kingdom is lost, and the priesthood is taken away, and everything seems hopeless. God has abandoned them. God has judged them. Because while God is first and foremost a God of love, he is also a God of truth. There is consequences to our agency, our power, and our decisions. There is consequences when we choose to worship and to dedicate our lives and our energy to things other than what God has called good, true, and beautiful. So there's a loss and there's exile. That's the second movement of the genealogy. And then, so it's, there's a movement up, lifting us up with God's mercy and then bringing us back down with God's judgment and the consequences of our own sin. And then the third movement is this climax towards this pinnacle moment where Jesus is going to enter into human history and change everything. So that's the backdrop, the historical and the narrative backdrop of what, what Matthew is trying to do. So, we now arrive at the scene of Joseph and Mary. He's just painted us this, this, it's more than just this historical and this theological trajectory, because see, he uses two words, well, one word, twice. At the beginning of the genealogy, he says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The actual word there is this, it should read, or could read, this is the genesis of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. And then he repeats that phrase. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. That's what it reads in our text. But in the original language, once again, it uses that term Genesis. This is the Genesis of Jesus. This is the, the new creation. See, Matthew's being intentional here. He's trying to evoke in us a recollection of that great moment where the Spirit of God hovered over the waters and out of chaos created all of the created order, revealing that God is this creative, dynamic God who wants to be in relationship with us, who commissions us as his image bearers to have a purpose and a destiny to partner with him in this world. But Matthew is not concerned about that genesis so much. He thinks actually that this moment is the deeper genesis, the more important genesis, the moment where God becomes flesh in the humble womb of a woman named Mary. So the first scene here is the Holy Spirit Genesis of Jesus. It's in you know, Matthew 1, 18. What can we learn from this? Well, importantly, I think, the biggest point is that the Holy Spirit, not man, not in this case Joseph, nor man in general, is the active agent. When it comes to true creativity, life, the future, hope, salvation, it's not achieved by man-made power or aspirations or the ways that we would normally expect. No, the Holy Spirit is the active agent. And here, the Holy Spirit's work actually subverts deeply the established pattern of the patriarchal structure of that day. We see that reflected in the, in the genealogy itself, the inclusion of four different women who shouldn't belong there, according to tradition, because name and family house and honor is passed down through men exclusively. But in Jesus' line, in the Messiah's line, in God's saving line, we actually see some unexpected stories. Stories of powerful women of faith who also subvert and break our paradigms of what it should be included in the family of God. We also see people like David. Like I mentioned, in the genealogy, it's a tapestry of broken humans that God, it's his activity and it's his pronouncement and it's his power 
that makes people his own, that, it, that says who gets to belong and who doesn't get to belong in his family. It's not just human power or religious tradition. He's doing a new thing. We're primed for that by the genealogy, and we see that explicitly here when we as the reader knows that Mary is pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Joseph doesn't know that yet. <laughs> Poor guy. We're going to get to him. In Philippians 2, 13, this is good news for us because for you and I, when we're facing change, when we're facing an uncertain future, when we're facing loss, what we can trust here is that the God who began all things by creating the world is the same God who created Christ here, is the same God who lives within you and I through the Holy Spirit. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. The good news is that we only ever respond to God's movement towards us and his dreams and desires for our lives. Now, our response has power. You and I have a choice. Will we partner with what God wants to do in our own hearts and through your own unique life? Joseph offers us a model of what faithfulness or righteousness could look like in the face of unexpected change. The next movement here in Matthew 1, 19 through 20 is Joseph the just and the lose-lose choice is what I call it. Because see, for you and I, he said, it's just like it's really hard for us to connect with how profound a loss it would have been to lose the temple and to be displaced in that way. It's also really hard for you and I to actually really con deeply connect with the story of Joseph and Mary in a lot of ways and understand how radical and profound and disruptive and terrifying and terrible this situation is for them. Because we just read it on the far side of history being like, well, we know that, we know that it was the Holy Spirit, that the Immaculate Conception, and that it was God being birthed into Mary's womb, who is going to what? To save the sins of his people. We read it through that lens, having experienced the truth and the power of Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection. But in that moment, Joseph didn't know that. Right? He actually, thus far in the text, he hasn't had his dream yet. No. Instead, he has to wrestle with something that we all have to wrestle with, which is this sense of betrayal that happens so often when things change, Right? Isn't it true that so often in our lives, when change happens, we feel a sense of betrayal? That person wasn't supposed to treat me like that. That spouse wasn't supposed to be like that. Even, when, even death, when it comes, even when it's expected because we know it because of age or illness, doesn't it still feel like a betrayal? Like something, this isn't supposed to happen. Joseph is feeling and experiencing that in this moment, but I, to try and, to try and uh, understand the gravity of this, will you do a little mind exercise with me, okay? I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to picture the 1950s in America. Some of us can picture that because we have memories of it. Some of us cannot. But all of us do know this, kind of the archetypal image of this. It's like the leave it to beaver. It's the um, everything is is neat and tidy and clean and clear expectations about how the world is supposed to be and there is a church at the center of every town, and there is abundance, and we feel safe, and we feel secure, and in that town, 
in that small town, maybe it's a Midwestern town, um, we see a young man. And this young man is the son of the town mayor. And, you know, his family has actually been kind of the mayor of that town for a long time. And he is the pride of the town in so many different ways. He's, he's known as good and true and um, impeccable and strong and full of potential. And we, the town, are so proud of him because, also, because he has a wonderful girlfriend who is the daughter of a preacher, of the town preacher, and she is the model preacher's daughter. She's, she's beautiful, and she's smart. She's full of promise and vitality. She is impeccable in every way. And then the unexpected and the unthinkable happens where, oop, this couple, the homecoming king and queen, are pregnant, and they are not married. What do you think the pressure would have been there in that town? Well, back then it probably would have been, well, you're getting married and fast. We call it a shotgun wedding. Um, Because, well, they really loved each other. In our day and age, the pressure would probably have been different, right? Probably would have been like, hey, well, you don't have to have this baby. You know? But in both cases, it would have been scandalous. And everybody would have known and it would have brought dishonor on both families, but even more so here. See, the lose-lose choice that Joseph faces in this moment is back then, but betrothal or engagement was very different than it is for us here, you know? Us here now, it's like, yes, there's a pledge made, there's a ring that's given, you know, and people are excited, and we begin planning a wedding, and if you're really smart, then you'll go see Jeff and Robin Rinky, and you'll go sign up for the premarital class here at North Coast Calvary, which I can attest to is really great, because I took it twice with two different women, and it worked both times. <laughs> it ended one relationship, and it began a marriage in a different one. So I really strongly recommend it. No, they didn't have that option. See, back then, according to the law in Deuteronomy 22, see, Joseph actually had rights in this case, and he had a a precedent set. You know, when he discovers that Mary is pregnant, what he must have, he must have experienced a profound sense of betrayal, right? Because there's only two options, because he knows he's not the father. It's either she was unfaithful or she was violated, and both of those are horrendous to conceive of. So what does he as a just man do? What does he as the, the son of the mayor of the town? Because see, that, when I use that analogy, I mean, Joseph's of the Davidic line. He's royalty. He's a, a, the kingly house. So there's a lot expected of him. Regardless of the fact that he's a carpenter, it's still, there's a pressure on him to be a cut above. And he is. He's righteous and he's faithful to the law. And when he encounters this, his response begins to paint for you and I a picture of what righteousness or faithfulness in the face of change and loss could look like. See, this is what Joseph has to choose between. Because according to the, the law in Deuteronomy, if a situation like this happens where there's a marriage or there's a betrothal and um, the, woman, the, the man believes the woman has been unfaithful, well, by rights, he's allowed to make a public spectacle and ask the parents to prove it. So they're asked, they say, hey, she was unfaithful. Now, if she wasn't, the family can actually come, according to the custom of the day, and be like, no, we actually have proof of her, of, of the fact that the night she was with you on her wedding night was the first time, you know? 
They kept that as an insurance policy, that piece of, of sheet. But if they could, so if they could prove it, then Joseph would have to pay a penalty of 100 silver, silver shekels to the family for besmirching their name, because that's how much family honor mattered. We don't get that. We view ourselves as individuals, you know, isolated individuals in so many ways. Back then, family and the family name meant everything in a shame and honor culture. But more than that, so if, if it was proven that she was unfaithful, if the family couldn't prove that she was a virgin, which in this case, Mary's parents couldn't prove it, well, then what did the law demand? The law demanded that Mary be pulled in front of her father's doorway and stoned to death. Because scripture says, you have to expel the evil from within you. It's going to make the whole town unclean. That's the, that's the, face, the, the choice that Joseph is facing. It's a lose-lose choice. Because, so if he, if he goes according to religious con- and social conventions, yes, he protects his own name in some capacity, but he loses Mary. And more than that, she potentially could be killed along with the child inside of her. And he would be declared righteous for having done so. So he, he carefully considers the law, right? But what do we see here? Verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace or public shame, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Because in that day and age, you couldn't just give the ring back. It was a legally binding marriage, regardless of the fact that they weren't living together and hadn't slept together. So it required a legal divorce to dissolve the relationship. Joseph considers this, and he doesn't want to cause Mary shame. That's the first hint of the character of Joseph, which is interesting. It's hard for us in some ways to picture what sort of man God would entrust his son to, to be his adopted foster father, because Joseph actually doesn't say a single word in all of Scripture. Did you know that? He doesn't say a single word. Mary's got a number of speaking lines, but not Joseph. Why? Well, because Joseph's actions speak a lot louder than any word he could offer, right? His character is revealed through what he does in this worst of situations. He proves himself to be a righteous man who God would trust his son, the Messiah of the world, to love and care for and raise in his infancy and throughout his life, to teach him the ways of God. So his righteousness is first revealed in Joseph's desire to not shame Mary. Perhaps that's also where some of our righteousness begins, a desire to not shame other people. In our pain, in our loss, isn't that often our response You know, the primary, one thing we talk a lot about in men's and women's skills and over in the counseling center is that when you and I encounter a violation of love or trust, which Joseph surely did here, you know, we typically respond by either blame, shame, control, or escape. We want to, we want to blame other people. Hey, Joseph could be like, hey, dude, not, not my fault. I didn't do it. I know I didn't do it, right? It's her fault. He also could shame her. And he would if he decided to divorce her. He can't really escape in this situation. And he also can't really control. It is outside of his control. But he has this other consciousness, right? He's, he's aware of Mary. He cares about and is concerned with her more than he is just his own reputation. I think that's where righteousness in a lot of different ways begins. 
Are we aware of who God is? Are we aware of how our actions or our inactions, our words, impact and affect other people? How they reflect the God we claim to love and follow and serve? Are we aware of that? I think Scripture in some ways calls that the beginning of wisdom, a fear of God, recognizing the gravity of life. So, so Jesus, or Joseph here, begins to sketch this portrait of righteousness, and it continues. Matthew 19 through 20, and then 24 and 25, I feel like really revealed to us a model of how we can navigate loss and change and, and what righteousness looks like. Now, his righteousness might have first been revealed by his response to not want to shame her, and also his desire to live according to the law, his desire to protect his own family's name. But then, I really think that what happens next, which is where the story gets wild and crazy, if it hasn't already gotten wild and crazy with an immaculate conception, um, Joseph's righteousness is ultimately revealed in his willingness to entertain the possibility of what happens next. What happens next? The entrance of an angel. Joseph, being a smart guy, he doesn't react rashly. He, he quietly considers what he's going to do, and then he decides to follow the law and follow religious convention and societal expectation and divorce Mary, but do it quietly to try and spare her life and her honor as much as he can. And he decides to go to sleep. So that's a good piece of wisdom. Before any major decision, after you've thought about it, please sleep on it. (laughs) Things can look very different. God's mercies are new in the morning, and what seemed really dire might seem very different when you wake up, because you might be visited by an angel. Now, for you and I, here's my suspicion, is that when we get to this part in the story, if you're anything like me, we've domesticated it. Oh, an angel appeared to Joseph in the dream. Well, of course, because that happens, like in Scripture, and that happened back then, but it sure doesn't happen now. I mean, how many of you, by a show of hands, if you're so bold, have had a visitation from an angel? Yeah, it's like we, I, we had a couple hands, but not very many, right? Most of us, I have never been, that I know of, besides my wife, have never encountered an angel. <laughs> And, (laughs) thank you, thank you. (laughs) No, see, when we we read this, I think that we're conditioned to to think of the Hallmark, you know, movie in a lot of different ways. To domesticate, I've got a picture of an angel because I was looking, I was trying to conceive of, you know, like how we've domesticated the Christmas story, how we've tamed it of its wildness and its capacity to subvert our expectations and to upend us, Right? And it's because we don't, we don't, we gloss over the text. We've heard it so many times. We know the Christmas story and all the Christmas traditions. We're too busy to, to accept its gravity, and we expect, well, this is what angels look like, right? A cute little cherub with beautiful little wings, you know? Despite the fact that the most common response throughout Scripture when an angel shows up on the scene is the angel has to say, don't run away, don't fear, now, I believe, you know, angels can show up in a, in a number of different forms as they do throughout Scripture. But I started thinking, well, what could shock us into, into viewing this a little bit differently? What could invite us into this story in a little bit different way? And I was saying, God, okay, well, I want to find what do angels really look like, maybe? What would a biblical angel look like? So I did what you would all expect. <clears throat> I just sat down, opened myself up, and drew a sketch. No, I Googled it. And this is the first image that came up. Looks a little different than the first one, right? 
I think I would probably wake up if that showed up in my dream. I definitely would, in a rhetorical sense, wake up and pay attention to what this angel had to say to me. You know, and when I was thinking about this this week, I, uh, David Rousseau and Wade Konikowski invited me to go out and visit this incredible artist that lives out in Fallbrook who's got this magnificent villa that's like kind of a mini Getty Museum. And I was, the whole time I'm, I'm like, I should be working on my sermon. I shouldn't be going here, but maybe God's got something for me there. And lo and behold, um, it turns out that this guy is this wonderful man and an incredible artist and loves Jesus and also has a thing for apparitions and like angelic visitations and has documented them in some capacity, like has taken some pictures where he's like convinced that this is an angel I captured in this photo. And he was telling me about these experiences. And I was just marveling at how, I was like, man, I, I don't want to be crazy, but I also want to be as open as you are to God speaking and moving in ways that subvert my expectations and that aren't just neat and clean Bible studies or books that I've read by other respectable Christian authors. I want to be open to encountering the wild God who would do something as crazy as descend from heaven and to become a human without violating the virginity of Mary, to be born and raised and to eventually die on a cross and to be resurrected. I want to be open to that, the truth of that story in a visceral way, in a way that's more than just theoretical or theological, but in a lived sort of way. And as he, I'm listening to this man, and he's describing this, and he's showing me this, the shapes, you know, on his, he had a picture on his phone, and I was shocked because I was like, oh my gosh, I've seen that shape this week, and it was this shape. And I saw that, and I was like, oh my, wow. And then all of a sudden, I looked up from where we were standing in, one, in the gallery at his house, and my jaw just hit the floor because I, we were standing in front of one of his paintings that he was commissioned for the Thomas Merton Center in Canada to paint. And this is what showed up there. You guys see any similarities? I mean, it's not a one-to-one, obviously, but go back to the one before. And now go to this one before. Yeah. And so I'm sitting there dumbstruck because I'm like, well, man, if I were going to imagine an angel, it definitely wouldn't be in black and white. Um, it would look something crazy and chaotic, a lot like this. And then I was like, then I got, you know, my jaw the floor a little bit more because I was like, hey, Bob, that doesn't happen to be a statue of the Virgin Mary, would it be? And he's like, yeah, it is. And I was like, can I please take a picture of this and use it in my sermon this weekend? And he's like, please. I share that story because for me, in a strange way, I got to experience the truth of this moment for Joseph and the truth of this text, which is that God is always wanting to invade our reality. He's always wanting to surprise us. Joseph, part of his faithfulness is his willingness to be surprised. The joy of Christmas is what... Joseph receives in this moment in so many different ways. And it's what's available to you and to me. It's the truth that Jesus came miraculously and Joseph does the unthinkable and says, you know what? I'm going to change my mind. I'm going to repent. I'm going to turn around and go a different direction. I'm going to be obedient, simply obedient to the word of God, which says, hey, crucify your reputation, Joseph. Crucify the honor of your family in a lot of ways. People aren't going to believe you. Nobody's going to believe you that that the Holy Spirit conceived of this child. Everyone's going to think that you did. Suck it up. 
marry her anyways, and raise the child in the way that he should go. Joseph's righteousness as models Mary's in many ways. A simple yes, being obedient to what God longs to do in and through them, and we are all the better for it. And we're given this story to live into when you and I face change. Are you open to hearing from God in surprising and unexpected ways? And then, like Joseph, are, will you have the courage to trust in the face of that loss, in the face of what we, we see all around us in the world, in our communities, and in the headlines, to trust who God says his son is? Because he's given two names. And I'm going to invite the band to come out here. These two names are what you and I gather to worship. Jesus, which is Josh, Joshua, which means Adonai saves. That's who Jesus is. That's his mission as well. The good news of the Christmas, the surprising joy of Christmas, is that God will wildly upend things, but it is so that he may enter into our lived experience and save you and I as individuals, but also to bring the power of his love that has the capacity and the potential to change our communities, to save the whole world, to break the power of the evil one that seeks to steal, steal, kill, and destroy. That's the good news and the joy of Christmas that God came to save. But, but more than that, more than that lofty, powerful thing that is so beyond our capacity as humans to save ourselves, to save our families, to save our communities, to save our country, is this second promise in the name of Jesus, that he is Emmanuel, is God with us. The wild, unbelievable truth of Christmas is not just that God humbled himself and became an infant inside the womb of a woman named Mary but that he would grow up and that he would offer himself just like his father offered himself to be crucified, just like his mother offered herself to be crucified in her own way so that you and I would have access to a spirit that would dwell powerfully within us, would be the will and the power to act according to God's good pleasure. That's the surprising joy of Christmas and that is worth us celebrating and worshiping. So would you stand with me and respond? Joyful, joyful, we adore thee, God of glory, Lord of love. Hearts unfold like flowers before thee, hail thee as the sun above. Sing, we lift. We lift our holy hands up, we want to touch you. We lift our voices higher and higher and higher to sing it out, we lift.
Friends, the good news of the gospel, the good news of Christmas, as we said, is that God has come. Jesus is the God who saves. He is Emmanuel, the God who is with you and who is with me in powerfully intimate ways, in ways that give us access to more than we could ever ask or imagine. Are you asking and imagining about what he could do in and through you this Christmas? About how he could change your heart in its deep and crooked places? How he could change your family, your situation? How he could change our country and the world? See, you and I stand like Joseph here in front of an angel. Um, in front of what could seem through human eyes and human perspectives to be a hopeless situation that we are powerless to solve on our own. But this invitation is this. Will we allow our hearts and our minds to be captured by this wild and wonderful story of God? When change comes, like it did for the believers that Matthew is writing to, like it did for Joseph and for Mary, when change comes, be it good or be it bad, be the change of blessing or the change of suffering, whose voice and wisdom will we seek to guide us through? Who will we model ourselves after? Will we thrash about in protest and anger? Will we blame or shame or seek to try and control and escape? Or will we, like Joseph, quiet ourselves, hear a fresh word from the God saying, I am with you. And I will make all things new, even when you despair of what that might look like. The invitation is, can we become a people who consider others before we consider ourselves, who are known by the way that we love and give and how we absorb suffering rather than inflict it? Will we trust our whole selves to the God with us, the God for us, the God who saves? Friends, I want to close with this blessing from Luke so may you, may we, God's motley crew, his strange new family, this new community that is filled with the power and potential of his love and his grace to embody something different in our homes and in our community. May we trust God. May we go forth today trusting God who because of the tender mercy by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on us who live in darkness and in the shadow of death. May he fill you with his love and his power to guide you and your feet into the path of peace. The truth is, is that you can handle any change that will come to you and any change that may befall our world, though it may seem dark. There is always hope. There is always light. That is what is being birthed in the holy night of Christmas. In you and in me, we can say yes to God's invitation to something totally different. So church, I bless you today in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit to go forth a people of hope connected to the heart of the Father, experiencing the salvation of his Son. May you be people whose feet tread the path of peace and in so doing, draw other people into it. And may we all stream together towards a humble manger and towards the throne this Christmas and say, God, you are worthy of our worship and you are worthy of our lives. Amen, church. Amen. Please come up and get, there's prayer if you need it here at the front.